More Questions Than Answers with Julie Panessi, brought to you by the Democracy Fund. Can you get us through the events that led up to what happened at the end of January in Ottawa and and how you became involved in the Ottawa convoy? (laughs) Sure. So, okay, so... um, This is what everybody wants to know, I think. Over over the course of, you know, the, the fall and early 2021, so December and January, I was continuing to speak on behalf of Mounties for Freedom. Mm -hmm. And I had also been doing some work with a group taking back our freedoms. Mm -hmm. And leading up to the convoy, I was I was actually planning my my actual plan for when the convoy landed in Ottawa was to provide security for people who have spoken out, who are higher profile speakers, who have also been subject to to threats. So that was supposed to be my primary role. And then on the Tuesday night before the convoy landed in Ottawa. So if you just want one moment, I'll just check my calendar. I think that was like the 24th or 25th of the They rolled in on kind of Friday afternoon, Saturday morning. Yeah, they rolled in on a Friday. That's right. Tuesday before that. Yeah, so on the night of January 25th, I got a phone call from a friend asking if I could help um, organize security, like the volunteer security, for when the convoy landed in Ottawa. And I, I couldn't, I felt like I couldn't say no, right? Like no other profession stood up for the rights and freedoms of Canadians en masse until the truck convoy. And I, you know, I'd been paying attention. I've been, oh, I've been so, I was so excited for when they came to town, right? Like you see the support that they're getting as they're traveling across Canada, all the videos, the overpass is packed with people, people lined up along the highway, like uh, the stories, of the, the places, yeah, the stories of places that they had stopped for overnight and the reception parties that are, that they would get with like people bringing tons, tons of, of food. food. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Um, and it was like, I, I had, I had to say yes, right. There's no way I was going to, not help these people who took yeah well and they they took a stand for me and my family and others like me or others like us when nobody else did our our government didn't do it not even the official opposition until the convoy became so you know supported um our our (laughs) police our police didn't do it our our courts didn't do it our doctors didn't do it. They're still not doing it. Right. Like we, uh, the vast majority of people are still silent, even if they feel Mm -hmm. the same way, even if they feel and think the same way as me, they're the vast majority of people are still silent. So I felt morally obligated to, yes, absolutely. I will help as best as I can. So the following Wednesday, the, the next morning, I went to my first meeting about it. And there was just a small handful of people around this kitchen table and I realized like, oh my goodness, what this, have I is a, this is a massive machine that is about to roll into the city of Ottawa. And we have about two days to prepare for it. And like, 
we had to, it was a mad scramble to get volunteers organized and like contacted and lined up and agreed to help. And it was, who are these, it was if you, quite if chaotic. Say, who, who are these people that are organizing things in Ottawa? This would be Wednesday, right? And the, the truckers are, I don't know, they're in Northern Ontario now or something. And, and you're sitting at this kitchen table in Ottawa and, and who's trying to get this organized for them? Well, I, I'm not going to share names, but it was, uh, you know, because anyone who's identified as an organizer seems to be become a target of the federal government and the RCMP. So I was going to say, not um, just seems to, there's evidence for that, but as you said it earlier, we don't care about evidence. So never, I I can talk about the evidence for that too. Um, so it was all the people, it was the people who, who founded the, uh, adopt a trucker, right? Like with, and the initial intention was, you know what, we're going to provide people food and transportation, like shuttle transportation and try and find, uh, places for people to sleep if they need them, you know, like try and help these people provide these people, the basic necessities of life on a volunteer basis, because of course, most people who are coming with the convoy or who are, coming as a support, like a supporter for the convoy are no longer working, right? A lot of uh, the vast majority of these people have lost their job. And so we were trying to like set something up that would be able to accommodate this massive influx of people in Ottawa so that people would have food, water, shelter, transportation, right? And And did they have any idea at the time how long, I mean, it ended up going on, what was it, three weeks or three and a half weeks it, yeah, did it was any sense of that at the time that they were planning for that kind of duration no i don't think so i don't i like i think we i think people expected like mm, you know maybe three days to a okay. week or so i don't know for so a tenth of what you know or something yes right so but we knew that the convoy was huge right like okay. you were hearing various numbers but we knew that it was in the thousands of trucks okay well I was going to ask you that because I yes I kept hearing different things you know so I so but you would have had a good sense of I honestly I don't I don't know what the final number was because I never even got to all of the places that people were Mm -hmm. like I I never physically made it to the like the staging area at Coventry Road like I my I basically lived out of one location for almost that entire three weeks and I would only get out periodically to kind of go give myself a bit of a mental break and go recharge by being amongst the trucks and amongst the crowds Mm -hmm. but um Mm -hmm. it uh it it was a lot uh but you know the there was you know it was ranging anywhere between like 10,000 to 50,000 trucks and I was thinking to myself oh my god like 50,000 trucks like I don't know if it was ever that big, but it was big. And so they knew, or you knew that organization had to happen. You didn't really know how many people you were organizing or for how long or what would be required or how cold it would be or what mm-hmm. the Ottawa police would do. Or so you well, knew that decisions had to be made, but the particulars were so sort of um, fluid and, and unknown. Yeah. Right? yeah, it was what I, what I've said to people, cause it was chaotic for sure. And the first like the first week especially was quite stressful like people were living on no sleep and just go 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 like your phone never stopped ringing and it was you know it it was easy to get frustrated because there was no like real structure in place for those initial days 
and I kept trying to remind people like, look, a big event like this in downtown Ottawa, like a Canada Day scale event is about a year in the planning. (laughs) And that's like, and that's when you're talking about paid professionals where that is their full-time job planning all the different components. Like we are making it work as best we can on a volunteer basis and on two days notice, right? Like it was, it was significant. It was a, it was a massive undertaking. So, I mean, everyone who stepped up was like, they, I think everyone at some point in time felt completely overwhelmed, but we knew that, well, we don't have a choice. We just have to keep going, right? Like, so do the best you can. And it was actually, it was incredible. Like the, the, the talent level of people that came out of, I call it, came out of the woodwork, just unsolicited to offer their help was incredible. Like it felt like, like we had teams of people from professional backgrounds helping in every, every aspect, you know, it was, it was incredible. And are you able, don't, don't, uh, I, I certainly understand why you don't want to mention specific names or maybe even specific positions, but can you give a bit of a sense of the kinds of skill sets that people had that were helping to, um, you know, make this system work? Well, we had, we had people from almost every profession, like, I mean, obviously the truck drivers. And I mean, the people that came from that community, like the trucker community and the, and the work, like the working class blue collar people that came uh, as part of that convoy, like you want to talk about people who need, who know how to get stuff done when it's, when you need it, like you didn't even have to ask twice. And most of the time you didn't have to ask at all. They were just (laughs) doing things on their own initiative, like, uh, cleaning up the sidewalks, um, feeding homeless people, uh, setting up like events for people to, to entertain themselves like street hockey games and bouncy castles. I mean, those are the things that have gotten a lot of attention, right? Well, people did that all on their own initiative. Let's pause on that because Danny, I I don't know if they've gotten enough attention. They've gotten attention with certain like the freedom convoy, 2022 Instagram channel, things like Mm -hmm. that. But, but let's, so those things are real were they, because so many, like a lot of people, you know, someone like myself, I was there for a few days, you come home and you tell people back home what happened and they'll say, Oh, that's just fake news. No. No, that's a hundred percent real. Like what, um, I saw people with my own eyes, truckers cleaning the streets. I saw mm-hmm. them uh, because it was really slushy and compacted and slippery when I was there. So they were mm-hmm. kind of like, you know, getting rid of that slushy ice stuff. I saw them picking up garbage. Yep. Um, I saw some hockey in the streets. That's what I saw with my own eyes. So can you tell us what else, what else was going on, you know, in the weeks following? <clears throat> well, we didn't, one example is the, the, I guess you call them block captains in the different parts of the city where truckers were congregated. They set up their own community night watch because we didn't have enough security volunteers to provide like everywhere with security 24 seven. And so they took some of that responsibility on themselves on their own. That was an idea that I had in my head. And when I went to go speak to someone about it, they had already set that up in motion. And so like a community watch. And so they would patrol in pairs keeping an eye on things because like all through the night, because they knew that while trucks were being vandalized, but also like to keep an eye on the, on the community itself. Right. Because our biggest fear was that someone or like uh, an individual or a small group would try and infiltrate the convoy and destroy businesses and do things that would, or incite some kind of violent altercation. 
posing race, as part of posing the as part of the convoy right? right to try and discredit the convoy and uh, all the police officers that i spoke to in those initial two weeks i had the impression that they all believed that that was the most likely scenario that was the greatest threat was someone trying to infiltrate the convoy to discredit the convoy or to further their own agenda you know no matter no matter what end of the spectrum like like antifa types right up to like the like a, a right-wing extremist no one in the convoy wanted that or everyone in the convoy was extremely vigilant about making sure that didn't happen because we're all aware of what we're what what we're being described as right mm -hmm. you know racist misogynist all of those horrible derogatory the same terms thing. didn't you hear if you are a racist then you're necessarily a misogynist which necessarily means you hate science which necessarily means you're conservative so <laughs> right they're all synonyms for one another <laughs> yeah so i mean like we all wanted to prove to the world like no that's not us we're just regular people who've been pushed too far and we want our freedom back right well like, drop you know, the mandates and we'll like drop the mandates and leave us alone and we'll go we'll go continue to be hardworking, productive citizens you, you say regular people but you know i would say i would say better than that i mean the truckers i met there were the love like way nicer than the average person that you that you yep. run into in the street i could not believe their generosity and these i mean and it was it was cold it was bitterly yeah. cold they'd been driving for who knows how long depending on where they picked up the convoy um, and they were so generous. They're giving away food. Mm -hmm. They they're still happy to chat. They're laughing. They're um, I had I had to get you know into the city and out of the city. They all helped. I mean I couldn't. I was I don't remember the last time I met such a kind, generous, selfless, optimistic group of people. I I yeah I've. I will forever be grateful to those people. They, they did more for us than anybody else in this country has for as long as I can remember. Maybe ever. Maybe ever. Um, and to anyone who would question what that convoy was actually like based on what they've seen in the media, my immediate answer is, did you come there and see it for yourself? Mm -hmm. And some of the responses like, well, no, I couldn't. It's like, no, that's a lie. You could absolutely get downtown and you would have been welcomed with open arms, no matter right. your background. No, I and, didn't need to because I watched the news. Yeah. Well, the news is lying like they do about everything. And we, the, it was the most joyful and optimistic hopeful massive crowd that i've ever seen mm -hmm. um before i forget a lot of those things that you did mention before though like the bouncy cancels i've seen it with my own eyes uh they set up a, a big wall tent with specific for children's different children's activities to be done inside um literally uh big cooking stations where you could like free food, free hot drinks, uh, daily, like daily, like stuffing backpacks of homeless people with food, like Ottawa or the truck convoy took care of the downtown core of Ottawa, of the city of Ottawa. It was cleaner than ever before. They managed the snow removal because of the barricades prevented snow removal from taking place. Mm -hmm. And so they took care of all of that all on their own initiative. 
They didn't have to, but they did because they wanted to show a level of respect to the city, right? Mm -hmm. And the Terry Fox statue and the war memorial, you know, there was that uh, circulating, circulating negative messages about how they'd been desecrated and decorated. And as soon as anything like that happened, they took immediate action to remedy that negative messaging. And they, they had 24 seven security at the war memorial, a lot of uh, provided by veterans, the majority of the time. And then they had a truck convoy uh, personnel, 24 hour security living in tents in like 30 below weather to make sure that the Terry Fox statue was guarded. Like I seen that I witnessed that with my own eyes. I, I talked mean, to those I, people. I hadn't even heard either of those things. And I watched all the, you know, alternative media streams. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, no, I, I, I seen it with my own eyes. And, and again, that was stuff they all did on their own initiative. People would come to me saying, Hey, we need security for the war memorial or, Hey, we need security for Terry mm -hmm. Fox. And then you would find out people had already set that up. You mentioned earlier that early on, so late days of January, I guess, early days of February, you had pretty collegial conversations with Ottawa police. Yeah. I would say um, the first two weeks, the liaison officers with the Ottawa police were really good to deal with. Um, the OPP liaison officers were good to deal with throughout the entire time, even into the third week. The RCMP guy, um, I knew him from like we had been in me meetings previously. Um, he was more just in an information, like in, a, in an information role, like he wasn't out on the street, right? So, but uh, still same thing. Like, you know, I if there was this, uh, information that, we felt was a legitimate, you know, security or uh, public safety concern. Like we were openly communicating back and forth and everyone was always grateful for the sharing of the information. And, and the, the parliamentary protective service was actually really, really good to deal with as well. And how did you, how did it happen that you got connected with the, I mean, did they come and find you upon the arrival of the convoy in Ottawa? Did one of you <clears throat> approach Ottawa police or how did that relationship happen initially? Okay, so initially I was put in contact with an Ottawa police officer as their their lead liaison officer for the for through Adopt a Trucker. So that Wednesday morning, when I went to that kitchen table for our first meeting, mm -hmm. and I was identified as the guy who would be um, running the volunteer security and liaising with the police, I was given an officer's name and contact number, and that's actually who I communicated with that very day about the plan like they, the Ottawa police provided me with a plan of of routes for the truck for the different components of the truck convoy to enter into the city of Ottawa and the the staging areas where they were supposed to park so there was no attempt on the part of the Ottawa police to keep the trucks out because we had heard that right that there would be barricades around the city no and no no I mean they were quite they, happy to have well or they provided the plan of where the trucks were supposed to enter into the city and where the huh. trucks were supposed to park. Did that surprise you or is that kind of? No, no. I mean, because I mean, we don't really have precedent for this, right? This well, kind of there's been a convoy come to Ottawa not that long ago. I think it was 2019, um, more so in response to like, uh, you know, advocating on behalf of pipeline construction and against the carbon tax issues like that. 
Mm-hmm. And I actually was working on Parliament Hill in, in a work truck, like a police truck that day that they came downtown and they just rolled up onto Wellington, just like uh, what happened here. It's just this one was much larger, right? Um, but no, that didn't surprise me at all because okay. my experience, like w- the city and the different police in Ottawa, they, they accommodate protests and large scale events all the time, right? Like that's a regular occurrence in, in the city. Uh, so that, that didn't surprise me at all. And when I got, when I received that plan, I was like, oh, this is great. This is already taken care of. So, <laughs> and I thought, I thought it was all, I was under the impression that it had all been negotiated and agreed upon. Like, okay, this is the plan. Everyone's on board. When you filter into the city, this is where you're going to, these are the routes you're going to take in. This is where different components of the convoy are going to park. Mm-hmm. That, that's how I initially made contact. And then throughout, I, I, already, I already knew the RCMP guy that I thought would probably be the best point of contact from my time with the RCMP. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the the parliamentary protective service person I got linked in as well through Ottawa police uh, dealing with uh, any events that were actually going to be taking place on the actual lawn of parliament hill and I, I actually I actually knew her already um, from any time I needed access to the roof of the parliament buildings for my old job mm-hmm. and then uh, there was a second Ottawa police liaison that I came into contact with who was also someone I had dealt with previously in my past career with the RCMP and he knew who I was and I knew who he was and then the OPP the OPP I I just assumed the OPP liaisons received my number from the Ottawa police and that was at the beginning that was mostly just geared towards like they just needed to know if there was going to be highway movements taking place right because that was their jurisdiction until they got pulled in to help with the overall, like they got pulled into the downtown core to help with the overall um, convoy in the downtown core. Mm -hmm. Oh boy, okay. Um, So can you take us up to, I don't know if I'm gonna have the dates right here. Would it be the, like the 11th of February? I'm trying to think about the few days, right? Leading up to the invocation of the Emergencies Act. Mm -hmm. Um, People that, that we know in common, who I won't mention, said there was a noticeable shift in the the feeling of the police presence from that sort of Friday to Saturday. Mm-hmm. Can you comment on that at all? How how did things change? Was there an escalation? Um, did the did the trucker movement itself change at all? That warranted a change in uh, the government's response, or was it the other way around? It, from your perspective, no. Um, like the, the convoy maintained pretty consistent throughout the time. And actually, um, I don't, I don't have all the details of the negotiations that went on with the city and the Ottawa police, as far as like, uh, truck movements, but there was ongoing discussion with the city of Ottawa, Ottawa police and the like truck operations, you could call it about, you know, there was, there was efforts being made to bring trucks from more of the peripheral locations into the downtown core. And so that would like kind of consolidate the convoy in it's, it's mostly for the, 
a lot of those buildings are big vacant office buildings because the majority of them are government employees working from home. And, you know, to try and alleviate some of the concerns of some of the residential people. And, and the convoy was all on board with that. Like they, they wanted to, people on the outside wanted to be more in the downtown core where the, where kind of where the action was, right? Like where, where the crowds were, where the, where the stage was. Mm -hmm. And there was a major, I noticed a major shift with Chief Slowly. In the beginning, his language was, was fairly neutral and I thought fairly mm -hmm. objective. You know, he's got his role as the police chief, but he was being, I felt in the beginning, he was being pretty fair, right? About um, what, the, what the behavior of the convoy was. And then just maybe a couple of days before his resignation, he did like a 180 switch and started to use a lot of the same uh, strong re uh, rhetoric and language that you were seeing from like counselors describing the convoy, like holding the city hostage, you know, um, violent, aggressive. Terrorist. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think he used that word, but I definitely heard that word. Like, like he, he you know, accusing us of planning an insurrection and claiming that we were domestic terrorists. I mean, What's we actually, the... we actually did uh, press conferences to counter that myself and other people who come from like a national, you know, a law enforcement and national security background. Mm -hmm. um, but I did see a shift in him and well, in his language, right? Like just, I don't remember the exact number of days, but shortly before he actually resigned. Why do you think that was? Why do I think he resigned? Why do you think he shifted in his language and sort of demeanor? Oh, I suspect probably because of political pressure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I mean. So if he shifted, why resign then? You know, he's going to cave anyway. Maybe he was unwilling to do some of the things that they were demanding of him. Mm -hmm. I, I'll, give him the, I'll give him that benefit of the doubt that he used some of the strong language but then perhaps he resigned because he was unwilling to do what they were demanding of him, where the, the replacement was obviously very willing to do what was asked of him. And he, uh, Chief Bell was, he was using that strong, like that rhetoric right from, right from the time that he took over, right? And making all kinds of threats about anyone who's involved, even if you're a pedestrian protester down in Ottawa, you're you're going to be you're going to be you're going to be facing financial sanctions and criminal charges and this investigation will go on for months you know um i obviously that's speculation on my behalf regarding chief slowly but i i feel he was he was definitely either pressured to leave or left on his own accord because he wasn't willing to do what they were asking of him. He was That's, being that, inconvenient that, in terms of his, his position and yeah, not he, sort of expediting the. Perhaps, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Yep. So um, we're, we're getting to, um, I'm trying to think when, when did that, was that the week before um, the emergencies act was invoked or how close? Yeah, I think it would have been, it would have been, I think it was just shortly before the emergencies act was invoked, like probably just prior to the 
like the Emergencies Act was invoked on Valentine's Day on the 14th, which the I think was a Monday. Yeah. So I think yeah. I think he resigned um, the week previous, just before okay. the weekend, maybe. So the Friday, um, Saturday between those two things. So we get the new police commissioner on the Monday. Mm -hmm. And then the Friday, Saturday, people are really noticing a change in the police presence. Mm -hmm. In your view, was there the introduction of a new kind of police Force. I mean, you hear there are reports of a UN, um, you know, army on the ground, mm -hmm. like that. Can you give us a sense of your thoughts about that? Well, I don't believe that the UN was on the ground. I, a, a lot of people felt like the the riot police in the green jumpsuits were UN, but I identified them as Certe de Quebec right away. Mm -hmm. And I know there was that there was that video circulating of UN planes at the airport in North Bay but I've had I've had two different sources that I trust that have knowledge of the aviation industry that said like those planes are there all the time mm -hmm. so I don't mm -hmm. I, I don't believe that as much as our world seems upside down right now <laughs> I don't think that they would have the ability to bring in the UN before they brought in our own military to support civil action Okay. Does that make sense? So a shift in the, the existing police force in terms mm -hmm. of their behavior, not the introduction of a new police force. Well, and I think um, there was probably, well, there was a mass mobilization of police, definitely. That's no secret. They, they had asked for many more resources. And I think that that fell in line with, like, initially it was a state of emergency for the city of Ottawa. Then it was a provincial state of emergency declared by Premier Ford. And then, of course, the, the last card played was the Emergencies Act on a federal level. And my understanding is that each time one of those, every time you go up a level, it unlocks more funding for policing and resources. And so I, I, I was not surprised by the invocation of the Emergencies Act. I was really hoping it might get voted down, but I, I was skeptical and turns out I was right. But, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, definitely not justified, but I'm not surprised that it occurred considering everything that we've been living under. It was for consistent the last, with the narrative. Yeah, it was consistent with everything we've been under for the last two years, right? Like making up rules as you go without being with no basis in evidence. So I think what likely happened, I mean, I, I like to try and when, there, when there's a big problem like that to sort out what's true and what's not, I usually tie, try to lean towards the simplest solution is usually the correct one. <laughs> and so I think those other officers had been there for probably two weeks, you know, or they needed a, a, a rotation, like for sustainment, they needed to be rotated out. Plus you're getting a whole pile of additional police come in to well to prepare for to manage the uh the location and and the, and the size of the convoy plus to prepare for the potential police action mm -hmm. and so that didn't surprise me and so i think the shift probably occurred because over the course of the previous two weeks people probably had the opportunity to build rapport with the police that were there. And my experience Can't as a police that. officer, yeah, I mean, my experience as a police officer is that if people are treating you with respect and kindness, 
you're going to start, you're, you're going to realize that they're not the, the, the demonized individuals that the government is leading you to believe. And so I think that's probably what was occurring. The people built a rapport, saw that the truck convoy was not, you know, was, had no intention of violence or insurrection. And a lot of those police probably even agreed that our charter rights and freedoms have been trampled. Oh, well, sorry, that's a bad use of words, considering what happened with the horses, but have been, um, our charter rights and freedoms have been overridden for two years straight. So, so, so you're suggesting that the police that was there initially, that the set of police people that were there initially were replaced, I mean, partly because they, they'd been there for a while and there was an exhaustion element maybe, but, but partly because they were get, getting too much, they were getting too close to the truckers. They were seeing them as humans. They were, there was too yeah. much fraternity, too much understanding and you can't have that. So no, we need to bring in new people who are it's easier for them to see the truckers as just objects, as as threats. Yeah, I yeah, I I believe that that was mm-hmm. that was likely a contributing factor for sure because we were hearing all kinds of reports, which were I believe to be true, and some of them were verified of police officers like refusing to come to work to work like during the as we got into that second week right refusing to support any action against the convoy like the oh. this arrests and seizure of, of people's fuel etc and there food. were several who just refused to do that that's my, yeah that's my understanding that a good amount of police officers like were refusing to work and then like in regards to policing the convoy and like you, you could see it, right? Like you, there's plenty of videos circulating out there where people are interacting with the police and asking like, Hey, how are things been? And people say, Oh no, it's great. Like everything, everything's been great. You know, we support people's right to peaceful protest. And that was completely counter to what city council and other political figures were, were saying and demanding, right? Like, yeah. What was it, going it on looks- in the house was so surreal, right? You'd, I, yeah. I was in a hotel in Ottawa, what, you know, and, and, and coming home and having been there. And then you watch what the MPs are saying in the house. You just think, just walk down the hill. Yeah. <laughs> just go see it for yourself. An abstract conversation about this. Yeah. Go, go, go see it firsthand. Right. Like- um, so then we're getting to, so this weekend, right. Just before Valentine's day and and, and, and then the days early in that week and some arrests start happening. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. So Tamara among them. And, <clears throat> and Chris Barber. Yep. And Chris. Yeah. And Those are the first two that were arrests of people that were considered organizers. Yeah. And did they know that was coming? Do you think? Well, I think, I think Chris's maybe took people a little bit by surprise. Um, not entirely, like not, not me anyway. Like, I mean, as, as based on what I was seeing from the, from the new police chief bell. And like you said, the, the shift in the dynamic between the protesters and the police, mm-hmm. um, an influx of new officers who didn't have that same level of rapport, the emergency act being invoked, like there was definitely a heightened level of anxiety. Right. And, you know, um, people were definitely even in the, in the media narrative was definitely like focusing on 
organizers, people who were seen to be organizers of the convoy. And so we kind of anticipated that that would, that could happen. But I, I think Chris's took us a little bit by surprise. That it kind of happened uh, during the daytime. They just walked up and grabbed them. But Is that what, they were just, Chris and Tamara were just outside for some reason well, and they were. Well, t- uh, Chris was arrested separate from Tamara. And my, uh, my, based on the video that I've seen of that, he was just walking down the street, like with a cup of coffee. And then the, the police just arrived and arrested him. And then, so once that happened, we knew like, okay, this is it. They're gonna, we, we were expecting like them to come try and round everybody up right away. But instead mm. it was kind of more like a, a piece by piece kind of thing. And I suspect maybe that was just, so it was more manageable for investigators to like triage people as they're arrested and to try and like go through their investigative steps. But, or maybe it was part of this psychological operation that seems to have occurred the entire time, right? Like (laughs) they would, they would pump out uh, a lot of strong language and that would elevate everyone's anxiety. And then they would execute like some small level or lower level uh, police action. And that would kind of, that would definitely, it was effective. Like it definitely, it, it was distracting to what we were trying to do sustainment wise. And it was also, you know, it, it, it kept everyone's anxiety, you know, at a heightened level, kind of like the COVID variants, right? Like, yeah, just when you think that things are starting to like, let's say normalize slightly, boom, you get hit with another variant and the fear, eh, you know, they, 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 they now, drive the fear right? narrative, right? I think we're in, we, we don't have to get into this, but I think we're in this now because the mask mandates are lifting just yep. as we start to hear about a new wave of something else. Yeah. Yeah. Right? A new, a new, uh, and this is like variant. Yep. a great way to torture people psychologically, right? You just keep them in it and then you pull back a little bit and then something yep. new and then you pull back. And then mm-hmm. uh, it's astounding to me, honestly, that, that you and, um, you know, the organization, the truckers were able to sustain the the calm for so long. I think whenever you get an organization of people who, I mean, this is a large group of people just Mm -hmm. to organize that many and to keep the morale calm through a period of time like that. I think that's just astounding myself, you know? Well, um, I think it is because the people who were seen as organizers were able to stay so steady and calm right mm-hmm. like when chris barber was arrested he didn't make a big stink about it neither did tamara and then of course others including myself ended up getting arrested as well mm-hmm. and we um you know our messaging had always been like we know that there's going to be an eventual police action like if they don't just drop the mandates like the hope was drop the mandates and this is over, but of course they won't do that. Right. They're, they won't admit that they're wrong. So, you know, so it you wasn't, knew it all wasn't, along, it was very unlikely that you were going to get out of this without some kind of escalated police action. No, I, I was, I was very, I was very hopeful that the pressure would, the pressure to drop the mandates would succeed because so many other places around the world had done Mm -hmm. so, right? Like Mm -hmm. the UK had done so um, just before the 
the Canadian government invoked the Emergencies Act, the White <laughs> House, the White House declared that COVID was no longer a crisis, right? So I think we were one of the only, one of the very few remaining countries that still have all of these mandates in place. And the provinces, you know, we had a, the official opposition replace their leader, the provinces all started to make announcements about, you know, uh, dropping mandates, you know, mm-hmm. it, you know, they were at least on giving a timeline of when that was going to happen. So there was a lot of success and I fully attribute it to the freedom convoy. Like they can say, they can claim all they want that it had nothing to do with the truckers and that it what I had to do with their science. It's like, yeah, right. Like, sorry, you've lost all credibility with me. I know it's a hundred percent because elections are coming up and you're trying to salvage your political career. You're seeing how much support the trucker convoy has received. And so now you're trying to jump on board and say, yay, yay, freedom. You know, just because it is apparent that that's what Canadians are start, are, are wanting. Sorry, that's a little bit of a rant there. But no, not, <laughs> not at all. I do want to ask you before we get into some of that stuff, though, that what was um, so? What were the charges that led to your arrest, and what was it like being arrested as someone who used to be on the other side of the law? Well, I I, I had expected to be arrested the previous night, and after what happened with Chris Barber. You know, we deliberately went out walking to, if they're going to target us, give them the opportunity to arrest us and leave other people alone, right? And so we went out that night and we, um, myself and Tamara and a couple others, and we actually talked to an Ottawa police sergeant saying like, hey, <laughs> the, everyone is claiming, the police and the media are claiming that we are organizers, we're here. And that guy was just like, well, he even, he radioed back into the NCRCC, which is like a big joint command center that is based at the building I used to work out of and nothing happened. And he's like, nope, nope. And we're like, okay, well, we'll be over here if you need us. And then so we went and continued mingling. <laughs> Not your people. typical criminal. <laughs> no, right? Like we, we were all of the opinion, like, you know what, if this is going to happen, let's just get this over with, right? Um, and so later on that evening that's when we we were walking down the street when the a patrol car pulled up and they jumped out and they came to go arrest Tamara and so myself and one of the other gentlemen that was there we were like well you might as well take us too we're right here because I was thinking man if I was doing a big if I was still in the police world and I was doing a big roundup of organizers oh, of this, of the, yeah I would be like oh well this is easy click 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 handcuff everybody into the police car go back to the office hand it over to the de- detectives and done for the night but that's not what happened. And so there was no, there didn't seem to be any logic other than either it was a deliberate, like either it was a deliberate psychological um, a- an attempt to mess with us psychologically, or they just couldn't handle everybody at one time. Like, yeah, disorganization, which I think is probably the case. Um, ba- based on based on everything that I've seen over that three weeks, like you know the 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 claims from the police chief that we were like you know highly organized and well funded, it's like well no it was chaos almost every day, and and the funding hardly anyone actually got any access to the funding right, so we were we were making it work on a daily basis, and you know the media narrative was that you had all these people with former police tactical training and military training you know, making it out to seem as if it was like some high speed operation. It's like, 
we're just trying to keep people fed and warm. You are not funded <laughs> by international billionaires is what you're suggesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, just to be no, clear. I mean, the, the, deputy, uh, the deputy director of intelligence from FinTrack said that openly, publicly on two different occasions, that there was no suspicious money behind the convoy and that there was no evidence of foreign influence or terrorist financing and that the majority of donations were from citizens of Canada. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, <laughs> it, it was the, Surreal. The, the, again, once again, the official narrative was so far removed from the truth that it's, it's ridiculous, right? But that, that's what we've been living with for, well, at least the last two years. Who knows how long it's been going on before? Yeah. It makes you wonder. Yeah. Maybe. yeah. Do, you, do you think the convoy was a success? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, like, well, we, we just listed some of the successes that we had, right? The big one, you know, most provincial mandates are gone or will be very soon. Mm-hmm. We had, uh, you know, our official opposition leader who was not providing any opposition has been replaced and hopefully will be replaced or you know, the, once the official leader is announced, hopefully it will be someone who's much stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think just on mass, it woke up, you know, millions more Canadians to what was really happening in our country. And it, and it generated like a freedom movement all around the world. Like, I think at one point there was over 30 other countries that had started their own freedom convoy. And, you know, of course, the, the big one right now going on in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's this strange kind of vacuum, though. Don't you find there, there was just this kind of silence through the media over the last several weeks, not really hearing much about it at all. And I think this is the, you know, I mean, if you, it, it's so much more effective just to create this culture of silence against a group that you don't want to hear from than it mm-hmm. is to openly criticize uh, and demonize them. Right. And I'm wondering what it feels like, you know, sort of from the inside as someone who is so intimately involved in the convoy, what it feels like to see that in the media that we're we're on to other. I mean, Ukraine just took over. Mm -hmm. That was a gift for Prime Minister Trudeau. Total gift. Yeah. And Freeland. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. The the federal government as a whole, because it has, you know, they they are putting. Is it a gift or is it like at Christmas where you buy your own presents? (laughs) (laughs) i i i don't i i don't pretend to be an expert on global affairs but that could not have come at a more opportune time for a lot of these big powerhouse western nations right that are you know in a crisis of their own constitutional battle with their citizens right Mm -hmm. like canada and the united states so it def- it's definitely served him well to take a low pile of attention away from how he just stomped on his own well, and he citizens. can direct all of his um all the things he wants to say about freedom and how you should protect people's freedoms oh. and individual rights and but that's really just for the, we have a double standard because that's but, just for the ukrainians right i but I, I do think that that's another that's another major victory from the convoy mm-hmm. so leading up to that weekend where the where the police action dismantled the convoy you know, it was, it was amping up. The anxiety level was amping up and I was trying to, well, I, I did. I, I said to many people in, within my circle and the different truckers and the convoy supporters that I would talk to on the street, 
it was like, look, if we stick to the plan of remaining peaceful, no matter what, we will win either way. If they drop the mandates, we win. If they move against us with force, we still win. Like we'll take licks, we'll take our hits, we'll take our licks, but the entire world's eyes were on Ottawa and that showed exactly how corrupt our system, our government has become and how tyrannical they are becoming, right? We, there was absolutely zero justification, like legal justification in my mind to use force against people who were peaceful, right? And like I've, it's such a huge contrast from what I have seen in the past where people have been violent, like at massive protests, people have been violent towards police. They've burnt police cars, they've destroyed businesses. And it's just, sometimes it's just been allowed to happen. Mm -hmm. And so it has completely, I think in the international community, it has completely destroyed whatever little credibility that they had left, that the, that the federal government had left. Um, and, and you see that, sorry, you well, see that. You see that thing. from like these, these, these big media personalities now who mm-hmm. are overtaking mainstream media, like Russell Brandt in the UK and Joe Rogan in the United States. You know, you have, they have way more viewership than mainstream media. And they, every time the prime minister op- like says something about a slippage towards auth- how we have to be careful to guard against a slippage of authoritarianism and how we have to stand up for freedom and democracy, they call them out on it right away. And they'll show the videos about what happened in Ottawa against peaceful Canadians. And um, unfortunately, it's also destroyed the credibility of a lot of the police in our country, right? And I- And the that- system- yeah, right? the system like, as a whole. This idea like, that Canada is the leader of the free world and the, the, the place of envy and such an enviable democracy. I, I, I don't know how there's any truth to that or how we preserve or rebuild that kind of reputation, but it just seems like the bottom has fallen out of all of that. Yeah, I, I think it will. I don't, I don't think we'll, we will ever be back to the normal or the reality that we had before all of this right um my hope is that we can at least get our fundamental rights and freedoms back and people are willing or the the government and the system is willing to let us live our lives as long as we remain you know as long as we remain peaceful and productive leave me alone right I, i i don't I worry I that it's as long as you remain compliant, we'll leave you alone. Well, I, I do as well. I mean, that, that's my main, that's my, my primary concern. And that's what I've been trying to communicate with people that are, they're uncertain about my point of view or, or they, they disagree with my point of view. It's like, look, this can get so much worse if we continue to allow this to happen, right? And I've never lived that. But I know so many people now. I've met so many people who came from countries like Poland Romania. and Romania and Cuba that are, that are saying, like, I fled my own country to come live in Canada. And now 
I'm thinking about leaving Canada because I no longer feel safe here. And they're saying it's better in uh, several people of Romanian background came up to me at an event a a couple of weeks ago and said that it's better in their home country now than it is in Canada. And as you say, they're, they're thinking of leaving. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a horrible, horrible stain on our country. I mean, as awful as things are, you know, one of the beautiful things I think that came out of that emergencies act week is we saw, we saw our Senate, we never see our Senate. Mm -hmm. And we saw some really beautiful speeches in our Senate about the place of government and abiding by the truth and evidence and cautions against the overreach of government. And that was a really beautiful silver lining to all of this, I think. Well, I'll admit prior to all of this, I remember having my own thoughts, like, what do we need a Senate for? Like, (laughs) like, you know, I, I've, I've had those thoughts. I'm like, I just thought, no, you know, it's, just another then you get arrested you think just oh, another maybe. misuse of taxpayer <laughs> dollars right similar to so many other things i've witnessed as my time in I'm my time as a, as a government employee the and just keep the senate <laughs> well, so you know especially because they're appointed right and it's it's not they're not elected yeah. but same thing like you like you said now i have a whole new appreciation for those things because it's like i'm fairly convinced that the prime minister drop the emergencies act before that vote took place because it was not looking promising and that would have been a major problem for him you know uh before the problem right exactly and and especially after the violent action that was taken against peaceful protesters before that that vote took place and now i i understand that you can't always in a true emergency you can't always wait for a vote to take place but there was no imminent threat right there was no imminent emergency. it was the same as it had been for the previous three weeks exactly right there was no imminent threat of violence there was no imminent threat of a of a, a insurrection by force there was no threat of foreign influence right there was no invasion it was at the most at the very most people found it inconvenient but when you when you speak to a lot of the people that live and work in the downtown core, yes, you have the people that were very angry at the convoy, probably because they were watching the CBC and the CTV. But I've I've met Not a number, walking on the streets. I've met a number of people who were so grateful, and they like the the theme there that I keep hearing from them is like I felt like I was alone. I, it was, it was exactly like what my body, what my heart and soul needed to see that much unification of Canadians. And, you know, they said like their business was going under over the last two years because of the lockdowns and all of the restrictions. And that three weeks for the ones that chose to remain open was like their business flourished. Right. And now they're being attacked for remaining open and they're the targets of hate for remaining open just just to try and keep their business afloat like these are people that they're just trying to survive and and then you have residents who were had a positive view on the convoy and the over the overwhelming theme i hear from them is like i've never felt so safe walking around downtown ottawa mm-hmm. right they said like the streets were clean the truckers were amazing i i i could walk around all by myself in the middle of the night and i felt totally safe mm-hmm. and so Again, that major disconnect 
between the narrative and reality. But um, because of that, because of that reality, I was really hopeful that like they would not mobilize a mass police action until they had that vote in place, until they had that yes or no vote. But I think after they they acted and then there was the threat of it being voted down (laughs) (laughs) of it being voted down it was a panic moment like oh god we just you know we just stomped all over democracy in canada against peaceful protesters who were just advocating for their fundamental rights to be restored (laughs) and now we're going to lose this vote like that would just, you know, he, well, the beginning. I don't over. know if the first part occurred to them. I don't know if they realized that they stomped over the, all over the rights of peace. <laughs> Fair enough. But I think they probably realized they were going to lose the vote. And honestly, Danny, I think we just need to keep saying that over and over again and having these conversations over and over and over again, where we talk about what we saw, where other people who were there talk mm-hmm. about what they saw and how important it is. I mean, when you live in a, anything other than a dictatorship, and you're making laws and enacting laws and having a narrative occur in your house and then disperse through the media that's based on anything other than evidence in the pursuit of truth. You get to some pretty horrible places yep. where we've gotten, right? And the only, I mean, unless someone smarter than me has figured this out, the only antidote I can think of is to keep having conversations that balance out all of that to be very clear craziness, right? Mm -hmm. We just have to balance to have it on the other side. That might fail, who knows? We We can't control that, right? But to have these conversations where we say, I know you're trying to control me. I know you're trying to limit what we say and what we think and how we act and what motivates us. You can find us, you can move our trucks, you can arrest us, you can penalize us in any other number of ways, but you can't control what goes on on inside our minds. And we will always be Canadian as long as we do that, right? You know, um, a woman I spoke with yesterday for probably over an hour, she's incredible. She's a local Ottawa resident. She was one of those people that was giving me her version of the story. And she said to me, you know, there was many very emotional moments. And she said to me that when she would go down to the convoy, like uh, she went on on a regular basis. So when she would go down there, she was never so proud to be a Canadian. And then she would come home and she would look at her social media feed and she would wonder herself, what has happened to Canadians? How can there be, how can you go down and experience it in person and be just surrounded by joy and love and acceptance? And then you go back home to your electronic device and all you see is just hate, like wishing people would die, you know, like just horrible, horrible things said online because of the narrative that's being pumped out within from our government and our media right like that's it's such a that i guess that's the one thing i would have to just reinforce to people like you said over and over again like i don't know if there's any hope to salvage the mainstream media and to get them to become truthful and honest again and i think we waste a lot of time 
trying to constantly counter the negativity that they're selling, the outrage and the entitlement that they're selling. Whereas I think our time is best, better spent, like you said, just putting out our version as much as possible, right? Like um, social media has a massive reach and can be used for good if people choose to use it that way. Mm-hmm. We have, you're seeing that major shift, like where I mentioned earlier, viewership for the news networks is plummeting while people are consuming podcasts and, and YouTube interviews, et cetera. And there's our opportunity to tell our story about what the reality was actually like. Like the media is becoming irrelevant and possibly even our government systems are as well and our legal systems. So I'm kind of leaning more towards the mindset of I'm going to try and live my best life and let them fade off into the distance as they become more and more irrelevant, as more and more people realize how deceitful they are and just focus my energy on putting out the positive truth. That's kind of where I'm going with my mindset because I find that it just makes you so angry to see this things that are being said about people that's completely fabricated. Mm-hmm. And so you spend all this time just toxic and angry yourself and then trying to always play catch up, like chasing your own tail, trying to counter what they're saying. Let them fade away into the distance. Tell our story. Show what the truth really was like. I mean, there's so much video footage out there now that just keep sharing, keep sharing. Like you said, keep having these conversations. And uh, I think uh, Vince Gersey's actually made a really good comment the other day when I was with him. He said, we can't just get stuck in our own little echo chamber of people that agree with us. Also, we have to be willing to have difficult conversations with people that we know disagree with us. And, you know, they might accept it. They might not, but we have a, we have a big percentage of the population that need to be open to the fact that they've been lied to. You know, I think um, this is a wonderful place to leave it, but as awful as it is for people I don't know, I, it's, I hate to, it sounds stigmatizing to say on our side of things. I can't imagine what it's like for people. You know, I was out in public yesterday and the mask mandates lift, mm-hmm. lifted on Monday, uh, but still I would say two thirds-ish, the three quarters mm-hmm. people were wearing their masks, which means they either want to, or they're terrified of what people will say to them or think about them if they don't. Mm-hmm. And so to be in that, so I'm out, no mask, feeling very, glad about it though a little trepidatious about when when it's coming back but feeling very glad about it but what it's like to be either part of the 30 percent who's firmly entrenched in this fear and hatred or the middle 30 40 percent of people who have no idea what's going on because they were willing to buy into that for a while and now some of it isn't making sense and they're wondering i think well what has been the what's the payoff of all this fear and hatred over the last a uh, couple of years, you know, and so as hard as it is challenging the narrative and wondering how we could have gotten to this place in Canada where we see that these, you know, these horrible things happening, how much worse must it be to be living in that kind of vault of fear um, where you don't think for yourself because you believe that you shouldn't, you believe it makes you a bad person, where you believe the government will take care of you 
but my goodness, what if that doesn't happen? What if that house of card crumbles and now you no longer have the skills to do it for yourself and where you've created relationships in your life, life that are based on hatred and insecurity and mistrust and judgment. And that's a far worse place to be, I think. Oh, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I always try and remind myself not to play victim and to think of a solution instead of just complaining about the problem. And I, I fully agree with you in the fact that like people who are still living 100% sold in that fear that they're going to die if they leave their house without a mask, like what a terrible existence that would be. Or the people that spend all day trolling people on the internet, like what a terrible existence that must be that that's what you spend all of your time doing. Right? Like, There's no way out of that because either you continue to live that way forever or you have to come to the realization that you didn't need to. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think that's going to be one of our biggest obstacles will moving forward will be getting people willing to admit that something has been wrong this entire time and they were and they went along with it. Right. Because um, no one wants to admit no one wants to admit that they've been had. Right. And I also think no one wants to believe that they didn't need to be as afraid as they were. Yeah. They didn't need that. And, and also that I, I think also there's a reluctance to believe that there's good news on the horizon. There's a, I mean, when you present the idea that um, COVID may be endemic and that that's okay and that we have treatments for it, that's not met with happiness. And that, that I think itself is, has been a litmus test for the kind of place we're at in society. And it's, it's that, that we're going to have to grapple with moving forward. I think, don't you think? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, uh, there's no shortage of, uh, things to work on. of things to work on. Yeah. And problems to solve. That's for certain. Um, before we end off, I never did answer your question about my arrest. Yeah. So, and I, I know <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a contentious topic. There's a lot of people that think because I wasn't charged, I'm still an insider mole for the RCMP. So I have to, I have to make sure that I'm, uh, I don't that. avoid that question. <laughs> so um, I thought I was going to be arrested with Tamara the night that she was, and I wasn't. And then the next day, uh, that was when the police action began. I was down on the front line with uh with my wife and we were like we're down at Rideau and Sussex and all that had really taken place at that point was like the police would push into the crowd and take ground and then I think the odd person might have been pulled behind the line to be arrested but I that that's kind of what I anticipated they were going to do when I seen the massing in in large numbers and we were down there and I was like I was pleading with them to to do the right thing. I was like, you know, explaining who I was, why I, you know, that we all know that something is wrong and all we have to do is say no. Like that was the big point I was trying to drive home is like, you know, that this is wrong. You don't have to speak out publicly. You don't have to cross the line. You can just say no and refuse to comply. And if everyone did that, this is over, right? If, if the enforcement arm just stands up to the government and says, no, we're not going to do your dirty work. It's over. Then their, then their words are meaningless if there's no one to enforce it. 
And so that's what I was trying to appeal to the, the it was the Ottawa Police uh, Emergency Services Unit. So like their public order unit. And I was, I thought I had a couple of them. A couple of them just were like locked eyes with me and wouldn't stop. And I was like, I was trying to speak right to them. But then um, I was getting messages. <laughs> One of the guys that was behind me was just like, hey, you got a press conference. You got a press conference. And I didn't want to leave. I wanted to stay there. <laughs> but he's just like, you're, he's like, you, you need to use your voice. Like this is, this is important. You got to go. So I'm like, okay. So we ran up to the Lord Elgin Hotel and I did uh, like, it was kind of a very impromptu little few minutes where I spoke after uh, Tom Maraza at the Lord Elgin and a press conference. And then as soon as I was finished speaking, my wife showed me a picture on her cell phone and it was a message from a neighbor saying that like the news is reporting that the police are looking for Danny to arrest him. So I was like, well, this is it. It's go time. So I walked outside and I had uh there's a young fella, I forget where he was from, but he was making, he's one of the people that was making like a documentary. And so he was following me and like kind of talking to me as I was getting ready to go turn myself in. And so I, I at first I walked down to Rideau and Sussex and I saw like the, the SQ in their green uniforms and I was like, well, these guys aren't going to know who I am. So I, I kind of <laughs> peeled over to the side, right beside the Senate actually. And uh, there, I found a line of RCMP officers and I was like, oh, well, that's fitting. So <laughs> I, I walked up to them I and I just, laugh. and I, and I just said like, I hear you're looking for me. I'm here to turn myself in. Is that true? And then I was arrested for mischief. And so the member that arrested me, he took me to like an arrest line between the Weston and the Shaw center. I waited there for probably close to two hours before I was handed over to the Ottawa police. And then I was transported to the Ottawa police headquarters on Elgin. I was booked in there. They told me I was also being arrested for disobeying a court order and for um, obstruction of justice. <clears throat> so, okay. Uh, that was, that was kind of blanket charges. I was hearing other people were being arrested for as well, or blanket offenses. I talked to my lawyer, I got put in a cell and then nothing happened until about midnight. So that was, a total of about 10 and a half hours uh, from arrest to release. A detective brought me out of the cell block, two of them, one great big guy, and I knew who he was. And so he had, he had tried to speak to me beforehand. And had, earlier in the convoy, he had tried to get a statement from me. And I had asked, like, is this a warrant statement or a witness statement? And he's like, oh, it's a witness statement. And I was like, well, I'm not going to talk to you unless I speak with counsel and and I never did end up speaking to him, but he's a homicide detective, actually. So the, the detectives that they have working mischief offenses from the convoy are homicide detectives. So I, I, I found that that in itself should be a story, right? Like overkill. You're act, that the you're, well, and you're, you're actively not, or you're actively neglecting homicide investigations to investigate peaceful protesters and people who are fueling trucks. Uh. Like that's it, but you know, they got to fuel the resources to the true danger, the true. Exactly. Threat. Right. <laughs> like forget about the murder. We'll focus on the mischief. So, and, and the horn honking. I so we'll put that on a t-shirt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so oh. he, he had all of my belongings in a bag. And so I'm like, Hmm. They're going to try and 
they're going to try and wheel a deal with me where get me to talk and get me to get released. That's what I was thinking in my head. And he walked me upstairs and put me in an interview room. And when he finally sat down to join me, his words, his exact, well, I believe his exact words were, why are you here? And I it's a very big existential. Yeah. So I said, well, because I was arrested for mischief. And when I got back to the cell block, they also told me I was looking at disobey a court order and obstruction. And he said, did you ask to be arrested? I, in my mind, I was thinking like, that's not how this works. <laughs> and like, no. And then I told him the story about the press conference and the message on my wife's phone and going down. And you could see that he was visibly annoyed that I was there. Like it was late Friday night. He's a homicide detective. And he's stuck working mischief files at midnight on Friday, right? Ah. He probably wants to be home and probably annoyed that he's not working homicide investigations. So I don't think I was meant to be arrested. So I think I'm actually, you know, could pursue an unlawful arrest because when I was laying in the cell, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, well, the mischief is all related to having a truck parked downtown and I don't have that. <sighs> Disobeying a court order was about, the horns predominantly and that's you don't not have me. a horn i don't have a horn on a truck downtown you know again which those are those are so weak to begin with but you know i was like well I, they, I still don't even check those boxes and then i thought obstruction of justice and i'm like well i was like i was maybe because i was down at the line pleading with the police not to move on the protesters i'm like but every time they pushed i didn't resist Right. I, I just I had my hands up like this and I was talking to them and they'd push me back and I'd let them push me back and I would just move backwards while I continued to talk to them and plead with them not to do what they were doing. And so it didn't come as a surprise that they released me without charge. I thought they might try and lay like aiding and abetting on me because that's what they were arresting people for who were fueling trucks. But I never even fueled the truck. So. Do so you think the person who ultimately arrested you wasn't supposed to, never got an order to, thought he or she had an order to arrest you? Well, when I came down to be, when I went down to the line to be arrested, that member said to me, he's just like, oh, please don't come to me. Please don't come to me. Please. Like, that's what he was saying in his head. Cause he saw me coming with the cameras. And then he said, like, he was, when I presented myself, said like, everyone was kind of hesitant. And then it was uh, one of the supervisors that was behind him was like, yeah, grab him. And so he told, he did what his supervisor told him to do. And I don't, I don't blame him for that. Right. Like he, he could have easily just not been filled in on the plan, the arrest plan, right? Like me coming out to meet the line probably wasn't part of their arrest plan. So. Criminals um, not usually so willing, I imagine. Well, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> but um I just thought, you know, a couple of things I'm like, well, if, they, if they're going to come looking for me, I'd rather just get this done and, right. and right. You kind of insulate other people that might be around me at the time. And also I knew that I hope this doesn't sound arrogant, but I knew that it would be kind of like a symbolic thing, right? Because I was the Mountie who spoke out. I was the guy who used to protect Trudeau, right? Like that, there definitely has like a, a there's a bit a of intrigue to that story. Mm-hmm. And I had become a bit of a public face because of the press conference conferences and other times I've, I've spoken publicly. So um, 
I was kind of hoping too that me going down there and confronting them face to face that some of them would have like a crisis of conscience and they also feel like I can't do this. What are we doing here? Right. Um, <clears throat> anyways, uh, going back to the, the detective when I was in the room and I explained to him what happened with the, with the phone message and why, what happened when I went and presented myself to the line, he said, he's just like, well, he was annoyed. And he's like, well, we're not charging you with anything. We're just going to let you go. And he said, uh, not going to, not going to bother, you know, big, long interview asking you the same questions I've been asking everybody else for the last four hours, something like that. And I was like, okay. And then he said, this has to end. And I said, I agree. And he said, well, a lot of people got hurt today. And I said, well, our message has been to remain peaceful no matter what. And he said, well, I don't know if that happened or not. I'm like, well, I was in here. So he escorted me to the door, you know, good luck. I'm like, yep, thanks. On my way back to where my wife was to go meet up with my wife, hoping that she hadn't got herself arrested. <laughs> I, uh, Things we need to worry about these days. I, en I, I ended up speaking with um, an RCMP officer, OPP officer, and an Ottawa police officer on my route back. And I asked all of them if, if they had, if like, if they knew of any injury, well, I asked the RCMP officer if he had heard anything about any serious injuries. And he said, the only thing that he had heard about was the horse incident, but it was conflicting information about what injuries were actually sustained. And then the OPP officer, it was just uh, uh, two members in, in an OPP cruiser at a checkpoint. I just asked, Hey, are everybody, are you guys all okay today? And they're like, yeah, okay, no problem. And then the Ottawa police, same thing. And so I was like, okay, Mr. Detective, like you're, you're trying to tug at my heartstrings a little bit here. You're trying to manipulate me, which is what, you know, they do, right. And they, they, they appeal to your emotions to try and get you to, to say things. So then I went back. I met up with my wife and she was started to show me some of the videos from earlier in the day of the horse incident and some of the other more um, violent arrests. And I was like, holy man. And yet no information of officers being injured, right? Not from the officers themselves, not from anything I've seen on video footage and not from any other sources, like not from any of the police liaisons like no information about officers being injured. So I think based on everything I know, the protesters did remain peaceful the entire time. So man, it, uh, it doesn't look good. So, so, so that, so what does that mean then? The, the, the protesters were peaceful mm -hmm. and yet there's footage of, non-peaceful actions happening um regrettably there's a lot of there's a lot of mistrust in the police now from a lot of people that i've spoken with i still i still believe that there are many that are good people trying to do good things um it was it was difficult to see people that I knew from working with previously down there. I don't know if any of them were involved in any of those arrests that were questionable. 
or the like the questionable use of force. But just the fact that they were down there was hard for me to accept because you could have said no and your discipline would have been minimal. Yeah. But I do know that we can't, I know I've spoken to a number of active police that are questioning whether they can continue in that line of work. And I, I don't, I don't encourage them to leave. I always say we need good people in those positions because if everyone, because if all the good ones leave, what are we left with? Right? Like I actually, that's, that's the conversation I had with my older brother. And I told them like, we need good people in the organization to make sure that this doesn't go unchecked. Right. Mm -hmm. So I still, I'm still hopeful that more and more of them will realize that our country is headed in a very concerning direction and that they have a huge amount of influence as to whether that continues or whether that stops. So if any police officers are out there listening right now, like, please examine the evidence and do what you know is right. Like, Canadian, Canadians need you right now to be brave and to stand up to this. And I would just, I would just like to point out that someone like me, who was, you know, relatively, you know, spent a good amount of my career frontline general duty. And then in the tactical world, like I care, people like me care away, people like me and the convoy supporters are the ones who stood up for the police when everyone else was crying, defund the police. And people like us care way more about you and your well-being than your managers do. And I know that for a fact. I care way more about our CMP officers as individuals than the commissioner does or than our senior management does. And I don't think, I don't think any RCMP officer that actually asked them, if they asked themselves that question, who cares more about me? And they gave themselves an honest, honest answer. Who cares more about me? Someone like Danny Bulford? or the senior management of the RCMP. I don't think a single honest police officer would be able to say the senior management of the RCMP because we've seen that pattern of behavior over the years of just members getting tossed to the wolves or thrown under the bus anytime it serves a, a political purpose for the senior management. So I guess my final message would be stand up for what's right they need us more than we need them right like our government these big corporations they need their employees more than the employees need them so we have way more influence over the future of our country than most people give themselves credit for we all just have to have the willingness and the courage to speak up when we know something's wrong that's, that's all, all i have <laughs> what's that that's all yeah that's all <laughs> very funny you know as someone who's taught ethics and given tests and ethics and classes and um it's 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 nothing it's hypocritical it's not um living it as an entirely different thing and ethics tests are very hard 
they're the hardest ones we'll ever face, right? Just doing the right thing, just having the courage is probably the hardest thing a human being will ever have to do when it goes against the crowd. But it just, I thank you. And by that, I don't just mean for this conversation today, but for many, many other things that have led up to this. And I know that you're gonna continue um, to be a beacon for truth and for freedom for all of us for a long time to come. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. It's always great to see you.